Well, welcome again to Black History Matters 365. We are celebrating Black history, and we are celebrating that taking a focus on nonviolence with Dr. Bernard Lafayette Jr. It's been great. He's been giving us great tips these past two um, times. This is part three, and we're going to focus on how it was done in the past with them him, Martin Luther King, and so many that embraced that and left so many clues for us to follow today. So we're going to focus on that today, part three of a focus on nonviolence for Black History Month with Dr. Lafayette Jr. So Dr. Bernard, how are you today? I'm so happy you're with us again. <laughs> Good. Good to be here. I'm we and you to. have your beautiful wife with you today in the studio. How are you today, ma'am? <laughs> Just fine. Happy I got you to be with you. I've heard about great, you. great. Wonderful. He talked last time about how women were important to the movement. So I can see that with you two being together, that women are important. <laughs> so I'm so happy and blessed that you are there with him and have been there with him as a strong woman for so many years. Thank you for your support. Now, your support. This is Kate Lafayette. She's what? And Joanne. Uh, Kate Lafayette. Kate, Kate. Lafayette, okay. <laughs> Miss Kate, okay. Uh, you're, you're looking at history, Joanne, because her father was Booker T. Washington's office boy. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Uh, wow. Yeah. So did you get to meet Lionel Richie grew up next door. <laughs> oh, lots of history there. Did you get to meet Booker T. Washington? I did not. No, I got to meet George Washington Carver, though. When I was oh, old. awesome. That's really, really awesome. Now that's history. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for your your service, your husband, and even to us and being a strong woman, strong black woman. <laughs> well, we'll jump right in with you, Dr. Um, Lafayette. How it was done in the past, nonviolence. Okay. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to share uh, with you my experience and uh, knowledge of what others have done as well. You've got to have, uh, as I point out uh, often when I talk, uh, the leadership. But it has to make sure that you have a ship and not a canoe. So you need someone who is able to manage an institution as well as be a spokesperson for the change that we are talking about. And when we identify the change, we must understand that we have to bring all of our resources together to focus on a specific change. Because if we don't, we will just simply complain and not change. And there's a difference between complaining about a condition and changing that condition. So one of the things we have to do is look at who has the power. And then what we need to do 
is be able to address that power. Martin Luther King, for example, had uh, his multi-syllables in most of his words and speeches, and he really sound good, okay? A lot of people say, oh, that was a great speech. I really enjoyed it. Some don't know all of the words he was saying, but it just sounded good because he had a baritone voice. But that was enough. Yes. <laughs> and the point I'm making is that music is important. That's the way Martin Luther King decided where he was going to go. He got about 11 invitations a day in terms of, uh, you know, uh, where they wanted to come and speak and lead a demonstration. and all. He couldn't go everywhere. So how did he decide? Well, there was a criteria, and I won't go through all of them. But one he decided uh, was whether or not people were uh, in coalition together, different organizations and groups. And then the next was whether they were singing their own freedom songs. Yes. I was with Martin Luther King, so I knew. Okay. Yeah. They were singing their own songs. That means that not only were they in the movement, but the movement was in them. Okay? Yeah. So, therefore, uh, you uh, then simply gave inspiration to a movement that was already moving. And that's what Martin Luther King did. He didn't start any movements. <laughs> what he did was bring resources and his presence and attention to the movement. Now, one of the objectives was uh, based on uh, Napoleon's uh, conclusion. And that was that no revolution has ever been won unless you've been able to bring uh, the sympathy, if not the active participation of the masses. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so, therefore, we had to make sure that we were appealing to the masses of people if we were going to be able to bring, and that's what Martin Luther King's role was, okay? Being able to appeal to the masses of people. And by bringing the different uh, organizations and coalitions together, like the March on Washington, uh, there were some people who were against the March on Washington. I won't call any names, but uh, they felt, and they were, they were absolutely right in terms of their logic. Okay, and that was that they they said we can't bring all those uh, angry people to Washington D.C. because if we did, it would start a riot and set us back fifty years. Martin mm -hmm. King continued moving. We had the confidence that it was possible to do that. He had marshals. You know who the marshals were? The, lab the different labor unions. These were people who already had an organization and they were together and they had leadership and they had discipline. Okay? Yeah. So my point is he had hope. He believed that it was possible. We had the march on Washington. 
It's a large march. But it didn't, uh, we didn't march in order to destroy Washington or to debase Washington. We marched in order to give a positive reinforcement of the change that we wanted to see. And that was in Washington. So we visited Washington. That's the comparison. How do you go to Washington? And what did you get? Okay. What did we get out of Washington? He said, okay, that's my point. So uh, in order to win the masses of people, you've got to represent what they want. They want peaceful relationships among people. I mean, the discrimination against black people and people of color, that kind of thing. No, that, that's, that's not uh, something positive. So you've got to have something positive. And that's the thing that's going to make the difference. That's one point. So you have to have good relationship with the media mm-hmm. if you're going to be able to win the masses of people. You've got to have people in the media and the writers who are going to express your goals, your ideas, and your concepts, okay, in a very positive way that appeals to everybody. And that's what they were able to do. Oh, one thing I should say is in Nashville, David Haberstam was a writer, reporter for the Tennessean newspaper. We allowed him to come into our meetings. Mm. He's the one who wrote the book on the children, which was, uh, you know, good. And we wanted him to understand what we were trying to accomplish and how we were able to do it. And so he was the one that uh, wrote his articles in such a way that the people he was trying to reach felt a part of the movement. Yeah. That's good. So they, they identified with that. When he finished writing his articles, and even though he had an editor, uh, he would write the same thing three times in three different ways. So no matter how much editing you did, okay, you never lost the message. So media is key to organizing and accomplishing the goal in the nonviolent movement. So you want a positive media. So therefore, you have to spend time doing that. You want someone who can talk to the press and be able to impress the press. That was Diane Nash. Mm. Now, a lot of people today wouldn't appreciate what this is all about here. But we're talking about heads of fraternities over at Tennessee State and Fisk University and all these other preachers and everybody else. And who do we select for the spokesperson? Diane Nash, girl from Chicago. You know why? English major. Yes, she wasn't going to embarrass us. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so she was one, okay, that that did that. So that was a a great uh, action on the part of uh, the the male leaders, in other words, to get a woman to be their spokesperson. Not only for, like I mentioned, you know, for the uh, Nashville movement, but for the Freedom Rides as well. Mm -hmm. And that's because she was good at it. She did it. 
she wasn't thinking about herself, you know, as a leader of some sort. She was interpreting what we were doing to the media. But that's leadership. Okay? That's why it's, that's why it's called leadership. Okay? So, the next thing is that Martin Luther King always identified the power structure. Because you've got to be able to identify the power structure. And what did he do? He um, had many multi-syllable words, as I said, but when he came to the definition of power, it was very simple. And you know what Martin Luther King's definition of power was? What was that? Power is the ability to either supply or withdraw needed resources. Mm. Okay? So you have to, in any movement, you have to identify where the power structure is and who can make the decisions. Sometimes it's not the elected officials. Now, you have to deal with where the power structure is and in Nashville, for example, it was the merchants downtown, downtown merchants, because they're the ones, all right, who benefited, all right? And I told you about the suburban shopping centers. Mm-hmm. Yes. I told you about that. But you could tell me again. <laughs> well, the suburban shopping centers going on doing the movement in Nashville. Whites were shopping in the suburbs because they started moving to the suburbs. They didn't have to worry about parking meters. They don't have parking meters at the <clears throat> shopping centers in the suburbs. Downtown, you know, they had meters where you had to park your car and all that. A lot of black people who worked, they all of the, the, the streetcars and buses had an exchange downtown. All of them left from wherever they came downtown, and then you'd catch another bus or train and, and go uh, home. So they were dropped off downtown so they could shop. So, therefore, uh, when uh, they start boycotting downtown, okay, the merchants realized, okay, that uh, they were going to lose. And so, because the whites had already moved to the suburbs and do their shopping, and even those who lived in the inner city shopped in the suburbs, so they had cars and stuff they can go. So they needed so, those black dollars. <laughs> exactly. That's right. The ability to either supply or withdraw needed resources. So that's another thing in terms of the change in the movements and stuff like that. These are the lessons. Identify that source. Same thing in uh, Montgomery uh, bus boycott. Okay. All right. Freedom Rides, same thing. Mm-hmm. Now, the irony, and I, well, I don't want to miss this one, okay? Okay. The is on the Freedom Rides, okay? We uh, were 
had to sit in the back of the bus, the Greyhound bus. All right? And we're going to Montgomery. And guess what? The local people came to the bus station on an integrated bus. Yeah, the local buses mm -hmm. were integrated. Mm -hmm. Montgomery bus boycott, okay? So my point is, all right, now, John Lewis and I, the Christmas holiday of 1960, we decided, because in Nashville, we desegregated the Greyhound bus station when we desegregated the lunch counters downtown because the bus station was downtown and had lunch counters. But we included them in our movement. So the people say, well, since we don't desegregate the lunch counters in that bus station, we might as well integrate the whole bus station. Restrooms, waiting rooms, okay. Mm -hmm. So the bus station in Nashville was already desegregated before the Freedom Line. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. Now, we didn't try to go desegregate the uh, waiting room when we were sitting in downtown, just the lunch counters. Sometimes you have to leave something for other people to decide. That's the other thing. You have to take on everything. You didn't sit in at rest, uh, restaurants, just lunch counters. Okay? Yeah, one at a time. But it has impact. That's the point. What is it that you can do that's going to have reverberal impact? All right? So that's another strategy. Take on something that's going to have a larger meaning to it. Now, we were negotiating with the person at the Harvey's department store downtown, okay, at 12 noon uh, during the day while other people, other students were sitting in. So we were negotiating. You always negotiate. You may take direct action, but if you're not negotiating, then you're not making any progress. You gotta be talking to the people who have the power to make the decision. And we were there at the, at the lunch counter. I mean, uh, uh, our people sitting in, and then we were up there negotiating with the uh, and he came in the manager of the Harvey's and said, uh, "What what what would y'all like? We were in the boardroom. What would y'all like to have for lunch?" Well, my goodness, we got segregated lunch counters, and he's offering us lunch up there with him. So I was students, uh, they were stunned. So they didn't know how to respond to it. So I just said, well, look, bring us whatever you're going to have. You know, if it's some hot dogs and Coca-Cola, whatever, et cetera. You know, mm -hmm. just bring whatever. That was the first time he'd offered us lunch. And so he left. The next person came in was the guy with the big tray, the black fellow with the white jacket and all the food. And he came in there and he saw that we were black students in there. And he stopped. Thought he was in the wrong place. And so he looked at his ticket, you know, to see if he had the right room. And he backed up. 
I said, no, no, this is the right place. You know, this is our lunch. Bring our lunch on in. So he put the lunch down, but his sweat was popping off his head because he thought he was going to get tired <laughs> serving lunch to wrong people. <laughs> so the manager came in, and our negotiating team, they looked at me, and they said, we're not going to eat down here, up here, while folks downstairs are not able to eat, and we're going to be up here eating with the man. I said, I understand, you know, I said, but let's don't argue here. You know, we go back to our meetings, and that's where we have our discussions, so let's be cool. So the manager came in, and I had uh, one of the hot dogs or hamburger, and I reached and grabbed it like I was going to eat it, but I knew I had not eat that because I was getting in trouble with my fellow students. So uh, I just held it out of respect for the fact that he was going to serve lunch. Mm-hmm. And he didn't and he saw that we were stunned and not uh, eating. He said, well, I really wanted to tell you that I've decided I'm going to desegregate my lunch counters. Wow. Mm-hmm. No, you can't do that. You can't desegregate your lunch counters. They all have to be desegregated together. So... Mm-hmm. If you desegregate your lunch counter, they're going to come after you. Your wife won't be able to go to any showers. The kids won't be able to go to any birthday parties. And you're going to lose all your partners on the golf course. And you're going to get put out of the country club. They're going to run you out of town. So you can't desegregate your lunch counters. Mm. What we need you to do now is to go back to the Chamber of Commerce, City Council, your golf club and all that and see if you can persuade them to come to the same conclusion mm. that you come to. Mm-hmm. Always use resources to help accomplish your goal. All right? We didn't need him to desegregate his lunch counter. We wanted all of them desegregated. So my point is don't just take advantage of a person or a company. Be universal in your decision making, not myopic. In other words, don't be a xenophyte, be a cosmopolite. <laughs> you like us? I like that. I like that. <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> Don't be a xenophyte. Be a cosmopolite. In other words, don't spend your time looking at the North Star when you can look at the constellation. Mm, Very good. I like that. Okay. Awesome. 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 I like a lot of great things here. I mean, that's amazing. I. I like how you all thought intellectually about it too. It was very intelligent thinking and being aware of what was around you and took take it took advantage of that. It's so amazing. Some of the things you said were like good leadership. You gotta have strong leadership when it comes. You guys did that. And then a good spokesperson, Martin Luther King, you know, <laughs> someone who can 
talk to the masses or appeal to the masses. And, and, and as an organization, too, you have to appeal to the masses. You have to know what the masses want and give them what they want is what you said. And then continually having a having positive relationships. I hear what you were saying there. And particularly with the media, right? <laughs> it's good to have good relationships with the media because they can be very helpful to your march or to your movement. And then um, identifying the power structures. Wow, I wouldn't have never, you know, I thought of that, but at the same time, identifying that right up front was very key to what you all were doing. And you, you identified them and moved on them and put them in place. I love what you, um, the definition of power for Martin Luther King. I had never heard that. That was very good. Power was to be, um, to, to have the supply or withdraw needed resources, correct? Or you can say that again for me because I might not be saying that quite right. What was that well, definition? That's pretty much right. Um, power is the ability to either withdraw, okay, or supply. Needed resources. Withdraw or supply needed resources. I like that. Yes. Yes. And you and again you say you can't take on everything. You have to be smart about what you're doing when you're looking at those resources. Um, Mm -hmm. because your impact is very important where you're going and how you're doing it. Um, and take on some things that have a large um meaning to them. You know, just don't take on small things because that's kind of the way to do it. But make sure they have some meaning and some impact to them. And then use your resources to accomplish your goals. Make sure you use the resources. That's a great tip. And then being universal in your decisions. Love that. Um, Because a lot of times we're just so focused on, you know, narrowly focused when we need to be more wide focus of inclusion of everybody. Because I had heard a speaker talk about how Martin Luther King was a global thinker, you know, and people who marched with him were global thinkers. It wasn't just only about Blacks. The movement was there about Blacks, but it was reaching everybody, like you just said in the last part, to to actually do what they're supposed to do or what you're requesting, to bring everybody into that movement of trying to um, come together and make an impact and stop racial injustice and treat everybody right. Because racial injustice can be done in different ways, you know? So I love it, love it. You have given some amazing tips. I love this series because I think we needed someone to kind of talk to about it and really understand it. So we appreciate your tips. We've been talking to Dr. Bernard Lafayette Jr. about a focus on nonviolence. And today he gave us some examples of during his time um, when they were fighting for nonviolence and marching for nonviolence, how they did it. Thank you for those tips today. And we have one more session with you um, next week. And that would be part four, where we look into the best way to use nonviolence today. So you've been listening to Black History Matters 365 with Dr. Bernard Lafayette.
Ed Jr. So make sure you tune in next time for Focus on Nonviolence. <laughs>